This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Assassination researcher Jim D. Eugenio this hour to help us commemorate the upcoming anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And in uh, just a few days, of course, it will be 56 years since the 35th president was murdered in Dallas. In the second hour, a miracle molecule, carbon-60, may just hold the key to longevity. Chris Burris is a scientist turned entrepreneur, and he'll be here to tell us about C60 and and this amazing peer-reviewed study, uh, an animal study uh, involving rats and what it could mean for dramatically extending our lives. That's coming up in the second hour. Owen Wolf is my technical producer. Ryan White is my live stream producer, and we are live streaming on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet. So hit that red sub button if you haven't already. We're approaching 18,000 subscribers. And if you haven't already done so, uh, please take a moment, and it just takes a moment, register at my website, strangeplanet.ca. Do it right now. Again, it takes just a moment, strangeplanet.ca. And then once you do, you'll automatically receive my free monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum. Uh, The November issue just went out last week. It looked great. Uh, So don't miss out on the December issue. Register at strangeplanet.ca. And once you've registered, your name also goes into the monthly draw for Strange Planet gear, like mugs, T-shirts, hoodies. We even have socks. (laughs) All available at my Strange Planet shop, strangeplanet.ca. All right. Almost 56 years ago, the 35th president of the United States was murdered in Dallas in a most grisly fashion in broad daylight in public. And of course, the questions of what really happened that day and what might have been linger for all of us. And here to hopefully answer some of those questions is truly one of the preeminent JFK assassination researchers working out there today. 
James D. Eugenio. He is the author of Destiny Betrayed, about the garrison investigation of the Kennedy assassination. It was first published back in 1992 with a second greatly revised edition issued in 2012. Uh, Reclaiming Parkland, published in 2013 and reissued in expanded form in 2016, uh, which offers a detailed critical examination of the Warren Commission's evidence and conclusions, along with the analysis of the CIA's influence in Hollywood. He is also the co-author and editor of the Assassinations Probe magazine on JFK, MLK, RFK, and Malcolm X. He, of course, co-edited Probe magazine from 1993 to 2000. And was a guest commentator on the anniversary issue of the film JFK, re-released by Warner Brothers in 2013. And uh, he's also here to tell us about a brand new project I- involving the director of JFK, Oliver Stone. It's a, a new documentary series. Jim D. Eugenio, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? Oh, not too bad, David. Working a little bit too hard, but outside of that, you know, I guess we can all <laughs> complain about that, you know. Sure. David's actually my brother. You were you were you were close. <laughs> it's Richard. Remember? <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. You're you're working too hard. You're working too hard. So first, right out of the shoot, tell us about uh, this uh, this new documentary uh, series that is is uh, based on. Um, Destiny Betrayed. All right. Well, the announcement was in Variety last month, okay, uh, by the distributor, all right, and um, which is AGC Films, Stuart Ford's outfit, okay, and um, we're in the editing phase right now. We shot about 25 interviews in five different cities, yeah, I never did that kind of travel because we did the five different cities in about 10 days. Okay. I've never done anything like that before. You know, and so, uh, um, we, some very, very interesting interviews we did. All right. And, and we're editing together at this stage. Oliver has, uh, one editor down here in LA, one up in Seattle. Okay. And, um, and we're working away. I mean, every day I'm almost, almost every day I'm down at his office, you know, and he and I are looking at these interviews and figuring out how the best way to incorporate, incorporate them into the, into the script. I suspect, I think, uh, we should be done. We should have a rough cut in January and then have the final product probably in March. You know, he'll and how be, many he'll parts, be ready to how many parts in the series? Market it. How many what? parts in the series? Well, that's a good question. It was it was originally planned as three, but I think we have so much good stuff. I think we might go to four. Okay, you know, because I think I I really don't want to cut out any of the great stuff we have, and we've got believe me, we got a lot of great stuff. You know, with that you know that most of the American people have never been. Ex- Okay, I guess I should talk a little bit about what this is about, okay? Um, This documentary is about, the main subject is the revelations of the Assassinations Record Review Board. And I've talked about this on your show, okay? How there has been a kind of blackout 
about all the great discoveries, you know, that the review board made on a wide variety of fronts. And the MSM has pretty much ignored this stuff. I would say it's been a virtual blackout. All right. And so what this film is going to try and do is try and get across to the American public. You know, these are some very, very important discoveries, and you should be made aware of them. You know, and the other part, the bookend part of this of the uh, documentary is going to be what we've learned about JFK, okay, in the meantime also. Because there's been a lot of information on that that has also been uh, kind of uh, ignored. Well, not kind of, it has been ignored. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, right. I've come to the conclusion that the cover-up about who JFK was is even deeper and more complex than how, how he was killed. So you know, that's, that's an excellent be... point, because I, I wanted to follow up on that, actually, if I could just jump in here a moment. And that is sure, the idea hey, that Richard, it's your this show. I, <laughs> uh, the lone gunman, <laughs> you know, we have spent, not me, but you have spent and others have spent, you know, decades, uh, you know, going down this path and talking about ballistics and trajectory and you know, uh, was was Oswald the lone gunman? Was there another shooter? Was he a patsy? Did he have anything to do with it? You know, was he by the vending machine? Was he not by the vending machine? I'm wondering if that in, in some sense might have been a setup to distract us from what you're about to talk to, which is the second cover-up. You know, something that's a very good observation, okay? And I've actually come to believe there's some truth to that. You know, that all this arguing back and forth about, uh, you know, the single bullet theory, the hole in the back of JFK's head, you know, did did Oswald shoot Tippett, you know, that that, and I think they actually said this in the movie, that that's all scenery, okay, you know, for, uh, you know, why was Kennedy killed? Who was he? Okay. Mm. And, you know, and, and why, and then why was there this huge cover up? Okay. And why, and this is the really important part of the story, why did so many things change so fast after his assassination? I mean, was that all just a coincidence? You know, I can go through a whole list of areas where this happened. We will. I want, I want to do that. But just let me just follow up on that, that, that idea that the second cover-up that you speak to, and we will get into foreign policy in places like the Congo and Algeria and the Middle East and, and so forth. But just this idea that the lone gunman debate, whether it was supposed to be shattered, because that just leads us down this other rabbit hole, which again is a distraction. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's yeah, any evidence? Then, then you get into all these different theories. Okay. You know, yeah, like, did the mafia kill JFK? Did the CIA kill JFK? Did Israel kill JFK? Did the Pentagon kill JFK? You know, did the FBI, et cetera, all the way down, did Johnson kill JFK? You know, and, and so that's, and that's what I think it was, I think you're right about that. I think that's what it was designed to do. That's how intricate uh, that the cover-up was. And all of this is meant to distract from who was Kennedy? Why were they so desperate to get rid of him? 
you know, okay, and and what happened after his assassination? Yeah, you know, so yeah, I think I think you're, and that's essentially what we're trying to do uh, with this program. Okay, we're trying to put the new information out there about both his assassination and his legacy. All right, and then let the viewers actually. The best thing that could happen as a result of this show, I believe, is people would start saying to each other, "Why didn't Chris Matthews tell me this?" Mm-hmm. Why didn't Rachel Maddow tell me this? You know, th- that's what right. I want them to ask themselves. Why do I have to get this from this documentary? Right. Well, it's it, it reminds me of um, uh, John Barber, who was on the show recently, and he had a he interviewed Garrison and he had a, a, a documentary out called the second assassination of JFK. In other words, he was shot once in Dallas and then the mainstream media assassinated him again. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but but getting on to the foreign policy, uh, you have made the point that, again, you know, we focus everything we, when we talk about Kennedy and the foreign policy, we focus on two places. We focus on Cuba and we focus on Vietnam and people, again, they look for theories. OK, well, he didn't support the CIA and the Bay of Pigs invasion. Uh, so that's a motive. And then he was, you know, he wasn't going to. Uh, commit troops on the ground in Vietnam. So that's another motive. So it's all wrapped up in Cuba and Vietnam. And I think that's wrong. Mm -hmm. I think that's wrong. And one of the things I tried to do in the second edition of Destiny Betrayed was to explain why I thought it was wrong. All right. And I started really looking into this in about 2012 uh, and I just became kind of frustrated because if you pick up 100 JFK books, you know, and you read them all, that's all you're going to hear about <laughs> is Vietnam. Cuba and Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and you'll never hear about anything else. It's almost like, you know, Kennedy spent, you know, 900 and some days in office, and that's all he did. You know, 500 days on Vietnam, 400 days on Cuba. And that's not the truth at all. Not at all. It's not even close to being the truth. And so one of the people we interviewed for the show is a guy who alerted me that this was wrong. His name is Richard Mahoney, and he wrote a book back in 1983 JFK or Deal in Africa. And I didn't discover this book until about 1995. And it was completely by accident. I was in this little town near San Diego called Julian. And as I usually do when I'm on a vacation, I go into the used bookstore to see if there's anything there that I don't have. And so I went in there and I saw this guy's book with the famous picture of JFK getting the news of Lumumba's death, you know, which is a remarkable, dramatic, iconic photograph. Right. His head is, he's despondent. His head is buried in his hands. And for those not familiar with Patrice Lumumba, he was the first sort of post-colonial president of of the Congo after they won their independence from Belgium. Mm -hmm. Right. 
And so once I saw that picture, you know, it's, it's Kennedy has this look of utter disdain, like he's almost grimacing in pain with his head in his hands. You know, I said to myself, you know something? I don't think Eisenhower would have reacted like that. I don't think Johnson would have reacted like that. I know Nixon wouldn't have reacted like that. Nixon would have had a big smile on his face, you know? So I said, there's, there, there's got to be something more to what this guy is thinking than Vietnam and Cuba. So I picked up the book. And that book really opened up my eyes to what Kennedy's ideas about foreign policy were, all right? And I'll never forget reading it, okay? I, 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 was, I was just, you know, kind of like, I'm not sure if my eyebrows arched up in the air, okay? But that's the kind of feeling that I remember I was reading it. I go, I didn't know any of this stuff, you know? So I incorporated a lot of that into the second edition of Destiny Betrayed. All right, and I tried to show that this policy that Kennedy had, this was before he entered the White House, it wasn't really something that happened after the Bay of Pigs or after the missile crisis. But it helps us understand why Kennedy did not send in the Navy at the Bay of Pigs, why he did not bomb the missile silos during the missile crisis, why he refused to send in ground troops into Vietnam in 1961 and then drew the line and it was simply by 1963 he's looking to get out. And so it was this idea, this concept he had about the third world that helped me understand why those things never happened with him. All right. And so I went into this and I actually brought up the name of a guy that not very many people even knew about, which I thought was disgraceful. Okay, his name was Edmund Gullion. All right, Edmund Gullion was a longtime State Department official who Kennedy briefly met in Washington in, I think, 1947 or 1948. And when he took a trip to Saigon and Asia, the rest of Asia, in 1951, he remembered Gullion, and because Gullion spoke fluent French, and he had been stationed, he was now stationed in Saigon. So when Kennedy went there, he looked up Gullion, and like many other people that he did this with, he asked him, this was at a rooftop restaurant in Saigon, Bobby Kennedy was there, and he asked him, you know, are we on the right side here? Is France going to win the war? Because as most, I think all your listeners will know, the French Civil War against Vietnam was going on at this time. They tried to right. They were trying themselves. to win back the colony. Yeah, right after World War II. Okay, and the United States was supporting this effort. And in fact, by 1950, the United States was footing about 75 to 80 percent of the bill for this colonial war. So Kennedy asked him, you know, is France going to win this war? And Gullion shot back and he said, there's no way in the world France is going to win this war. All right. Ho Chi Minh has fired up these Viet Minh rebels to the point that they would rather die than go back under the yoke of colonialism. 
France will never win a war of attrition because that's what that's what's happening here. It's a war of attrition. Neither side can win. And therefore, they will lose home support for this effort. And then he added very presciently, he said, and if the United States tries to come in and do the same thing, we will lose also. Well, well, JFK was really taken aback by this, all right? And his brother said that this conversation uh, had a very deep and transformative impact on, on his thinking, okay? And so what happened was that when he got back, he began to make these radio addresses attacking the State Department, you know, for... For, you know, that we have too many people who are toadying up to the home colonial powers instead Jim, of being I, in tune gotta, with the aspirations of the people there. We're going to take a break here, but uh, we'll come back. We'll pick okay. up on um, Edmund Gullion, his, uh, Kennedy's mentor in, in some ways, uh, and we'll begin to understand that Kennedy's foreign policy was pretty much in place by the time he was inaugurated in 1961. He didn't do an about-face because of the Cuban Missile Crisis. This was who he was coming into office, and perhaps this more than anything has to do with his assassination. Jim DiEugenio stays with us right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Jim DiEugenio, one of the world's preeminent assassination researchers, the author of Destiny Betrayed, Reclaiming Parkland, The Assassinations, Probe Magazine on JFK, MLK, RFK, and Malcolm X, and now uh, working very closely with Oliver Stone on a documentary series based on uh, Destiny Betrayed, and before the end of the hour, maybe we'll get some more details on when we might expect that and where we might see it. Uh, It could be a three-part or it could be a four-part series. Uh, Jim, we were talking about Edmund Gullion, the a State Department official that really uh, helped, I guess, open Kennedy's eyes when he was still a senator uh, in the uh, the late 40s and then into the 1950s. Uh, so the idea here is that uh, when Kennedy was inaugurated in January of 61, this was his his foreign policy was pretty pretty much cemented, right? I think it. I think you can make that statement that by when when he goes ahead and enters the White House in 1961. Generally speaking, his foreign policy views have already been forged, and I believe you can look at places like Congo and Vietnam that will prove that point, as well as... And Indonesia. Indonesia. Right, right, right. Now, was, okay. was Gullion in the White House with him? Was he an advisor? Well, Gullion actually becomes... I think by the summer of 1961, he becomes the ambassador to Congo. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And I, and I have to say something about this, which I didn't know until recently. Um, anybody who reads my website, kennedysandking.com, or reads my books, or listens to me on any of the shows I'm on, will understand that I believe that the relationship between Kennedy and Dag Hammarskjöld has been very underrated, okay, and ignored, relatively ignored, all right? Um, 
there is this film that came out Cold Case Hammerskald. Yes, All I right. just had that guy on my uh, show a, a while ago. Oh, you did? Yes, yes. Actually, it was on my podcast. A, did, you, did you see the film? I did. I did. It's an excellent film. I, good, I had him on my it? podcast. It's wonderful. Uh, and for those, yeah. just a little quick backstory. Doug Hammerstolt, Secretary General of the United Nations, uh, was, uh, you know, they, they didn't know what they were getting. They thought he was some dry bureaucrat, but he was a very aggressive, proactive individual. And he sent peacekeeping forces into the Congo, uh, really on his own. I mean, he didn't really, he just went over everybody's head. And at that time, Congo was fighting a, a war with a, a breakaway portion of the Congo called Katanga, where all the, the mineral wealth is really in Katanga. So Congo could not let Katanga go. And he was trying to broker a peace a deal between Katanga and Congo when his plane, of course, mysteriously crashed. Uh, in uh, what is now Zimbabwe, I think. And uh, in this film, Cold Case, uh, I mean, it, it's it's pretty much case closed, I think, in terms of what happened. His plane was shot down. It was not a pilot error. It was his plane was shot down. He was murdered. And and by the way, they're still covering up about this. They still can't get, the UN still can't get certain files from South Africa, the United right. States, Belgium, and Great Britain. Okay. Right. <laughs> All the guilty parties. Okay. So, right. <laughs> so, now, so that now. you the connection between Kennedy and um, Hammerskold and the murder of Patrice, well, the the assassination of Patrice Lumumba, the uh, the, the 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 president in 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 Congo. What is the connection there? See, this is, I, I'm 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 really frustrated that more people in this field do not understand how important Congo was, you know, I mean, in so many different ways. And I, you know, and I talked about this time after time after time, you know, until finally I got blue in the face and I kind of gave up. All right. But Congo under, under, just understand this in three years, the three people who tried to stand up for Congo's independence against European imperialism were all assassinated under strange circumstances. <laughs> okay. Lumumba, Hammerschold, and Kennedy. And by the way, I am not going to ever say again that Hammerschold was, was killed in a plane accident, because I think that's a complete BS story. Okay, and I think anybody who sees that film will understand why. All right. Now, this is such an important story for the simple reason that Congo was the first sub-Saharan, you know, African state to try and make a go out of independence after decades upon decades of European colonialism. And Lumumba was such a charismatic figure. And he was a symbol of freedom and nationalism, you know, to m millions of Africans. All right. And he went, let's be, be clear about this. The CIA working in tandem with the Belgians and the leaders in Katanga essentially kidnapped him and assassinated him by fire, firing squad. All right. And then, then 
they went ahead and buried him, and then they resurfaced his body and threw acid on it so there wouldn't be any remains left of the body. And I Mm. think they did that twice. That's how much they feared that he would become, well, and it backfired anyway because he is a symbol, you know. But when this is what Kennedy's picture was taken of by Jock Lowe that I've tried to describe, well, Hammerskald tried to step in and keep Congo united and also independent. All right. He sent in, it's really remarkable, he sent in something like 20,000 troops yeah. into Congo to clear out Katanga, you know, and of all the mercenaries from Belgium, from France, from England, etc. All right. And so it'd be, they, they could be unified under one leader chosen by the people. All right. Now, if you see that film, you will understand how certain people, most likely the Belgians and the Union of South Africa people, decided that Hammerskald had to be done away with. And there's two very important things, very important things to understand about this. First of all, in the Union of South Africa, when they had the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, they found documents from a shadowy entity called Samir, which was a paramilitary group. There were about 12 documents found. They did dirty work for the imperial powers throughout Africa. All right. One of the documents is a summary of a communication with Alan Dulles. And it says, Alan wants DAG taken care of more cleanly than Patrice was. <laughs> let, me, let me say that again, because I want everybody to get the import of this. Alan wants DAG taken care of more cleanly than Patrice was. What else could that possibly mean? Right. You know? Right. <laughs> All right. Now, the other thing that's so important that came out of late was that Edmund Gullion, who was the ambassador there, he never bought the accident story. I'm not kidding. From the day that it happened, he thought that Hammerskull's plane was shot down. And he thought that it was shot down by a Belgian pilot, a mercenary mm-hmm. pilot. Okay? Now, we're going to go further with this story in the documentary we're producing. Because we found out some even more interesting information about Gullion and the Congo and and uh, Dag Hammerskald. But, but I think that the important so the takeaway here is... Hammerskald is yeah. now dead. Right. So, Kennedy... One of the most amazing stories and the most hidden stories in the Kennedy presidency is that Kennedy took up Hammerskold's cause. He decided he was going to finish the job that Hammerskold had started. All right, he goes to the UN and he says, let us not let Dag Hammerskold have died in vain. 
And he goes ahead and he says, we have to keep those U.N. troops there. We have to get rid of this mercenary government in Katanga. Congo has to be one country under one elected leader. And he sticks to this. He sticks to this until the day he was assassinated. All right? And at great political expense. And so then what happens is that he agrees to let the U.N. troops go. He wanted to get a negotiated settlement. He couldn't get it. He agrees to let the U.N. troops go into Katanga. All right? And they take out Mosi Tashambi, who was the... You know, the, the front guy for the European interests. Okay. And for a while, it looked like Congo was going to be the first independent, free state, sub Saharan Africa, a great example to the rest of Africa. Well, like many other things, once Johnson came in, that went topsy turvy. All right. In a lot of different ways. And so what happens? is that Congo ends up being a vassal state, again, under Joseph Mobutu, who ruled for 30 years, sacked the country of hundreds of millions of dollars, left the country a poor state with a lot of European interests still making money off it. And see, this is one of the stories that, until I came around, I'm not touting my own horn because... Not the only guy who could have done. A lot of people could have done it and should have done it. Okay, Jim, but I got to. I got to jump in here. I started talking about this. I got to jump in here. We got to take a timeout. We'll come back and uh, we'll okay. talk about some other places around the world. We're starting to see a pattern here, folks. Jim DiEugenio, back with more on the JFK assassination. Stay with us. Peering into the shadows, where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Just a reminder, coming up in the second hour, Chris Burroughs will be here to talk about this miracle molecule, carbon-60. And right now, Jim DiEugenio stays with us. We're commemorating the 56th anniversary of the murder of President John F. Kennedy. And uh, we're seeing this pattern emerge. And... um, uh, first in the Congo. Oh, just let me one more point on uh, Patrice Lumumba. So he's he's uh, assassinated just within what a week of Kennedy's inauguration in January of sixty one, uh, and then of course there's that iconic no, photograph. Richard, no, Richard, you're wrong. No? Oh, he was assassinated was... before Kennedy was took office. Ah, oh. all right. Three days before he was inaugurated. Three days before. Okay, three days people, before, including myself believe that the CIA sped it up because they knew that JFK would not stand for this. Okay. So they got rid of him before Ah. Kennedy was inaugurated. And then he doesn't find out until three weeks after he becomes president. Ah. Okay. So it's after he finds out. I understand. So it was Eisenhower who likely signed off on that. Yeah. Well, he did. He did. The church committee came to that conclusion. That that what what happened was that Eisenhower essentially said, you know, we've got to get rid of this guy. All right. And then the job went to Alan Dulles and Alan Dulles sent a cable to Leopoldville and said, and remember, this is 1960. Right. He says, you have a hundred thousand dollar budget. Do with it as you will. But get rid of get rid of Lumumba. Now, a hundred thousand dollars back then would be like 900000 close to a million dollars today. 
Okay, right. you can dream up a lot of ways to kill somebody with that kind of money. Okay, so so that's what the station chief, a guy named Devlin, did in Leopoldville, and they brought in, oh my God, QJ Win, WI Rogue, Sidney Gottlieb, you know, the mm. poisoner, the guy who designed mm. all these poisons. All right, and then they finally decided, you know, something. There's a better way to do this, so our hands aren't directly involved. Okay. Let's go ahead and wait for Lumumba to escape house arrest, and then let's get him once he escapes and deliver him to his enemies in Katanga. So that's what they did. That's right. what they did. Right. Helicopters, okay. computer sensors, when he escaped from house arrest, they tracked him down. Okay. They, they cordoned off all the uh, waterways. Okay. So he couldn't cross. And they captured him, turned him over to the people that uh, hated his guts, and then they arranged a firing squad over in Katanga. There's okay, actually a pretty so, good movie about this. Did you see it, Lumumba? No, no, I haven't. Yeah, um, you, I, yeah, I would recommend seeing that. That's actually okay. a pretty good film. Okay, this is a short segment, so I want to move on to Indonesia if I can, because what I want what I want you to establish is this pattern. That, that Kennedy mm -hmm. is undoing or trying to undo all of these uh, little operations that the Dulles brothers and the Rockefellers, we should point out, were putting in place. So that brings us to Indonesia and, and one of the, the, the world's most bloodiest coups in history that cost anywhere between a quarter million and a half million lives. So what was going on in Indonesia uh, and the Dulles brothers? Well, the Dulles brothers tried to overthrow Sukarno who was the uh, original president of the country. And uh, it didn't work very well. Uh, so the American military aid to um, the uh, armed forces there was increased. And then Kennedy comes in. And Kennedy looks at the reports about the attempted overthrow. And he says, no wonder Sukarno doesn't like it. We tried to overthrow his government, all right? And so he decides that he wants to get uh, one of the CIA pilots who was caught during the attempted coup, Alan Pope, back, all right? So he decides he has to meet with Sukarno one way or the other. And so he says he's, he wants to arrange a deal. Okay, we want to get Alan Pope back, and then we'll work with you to get West Erion or Papua return to you from the Dutch, because Sukarno thought that this was really part of Indonesia, all right? And so JFK sets up what's called the New York Agreement. His brother and Ellsworth Bunker negotiate for Sukarno to get that island back under Indonesian rule, all right? And so things are really looking great between Sukarno and JFK. And Sukarno's really happy, and Kennedy has promised he's going to visit Indonesia in 1964, all right? And Sukarno starts building an estate for his visit, okay? And he was really relying on Kennedy's visit there to prop up his presidency, okay, against his enemies in the military and also the British, okay, who, who are trying to form... Uh, this Malaysian entity, okay, uh, which he sees as being against him. And so 
when Kennedy's assassinated, Sicarno starts crying. He says, why did they, notice he said they, why did they kill my friend John Kennedy? Mm-hmm. All right? And believe me, that wasn't even the beginning of the dark day that it seemed to Sicarno, because, man, as fast as the policy changed in Congo, it might have been even faster in Indonesia, okay? In, in, a, in about a space of about four months, Johnson decides he's not going to visit Indonesia, all right? He's going to cut off all economic funds to Indonesia and funnel them to the military, where he knew many of Sukarno's enemies were. In the summer of 1964, the CIA begins to plan covert propaganda and bring in people they think they can rely on to overthrow Sukarno. Okay, right. I got to jump and in here. Got to jump in, Jim. Well, we'll pick okay. this up on the other side. The uh, the Indonesian coup again, a quarter of a million to a half a million people in this uh, bloody coup, and it's all about the gold, folks. Back with more of Jim DiEugenio right here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Pin numbers, passcodes, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are. Here's two more numbers, 416-360-0740, or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. I think we're starting to see the pattern here, and it involves the Dulles brothers, uh, for sure, and the Rockefellers, David Rockefeller, as we'll uh, discover as well. And it's not just about Kennedy's uh, foreign policy with regards to Cuba or uh, Vietnam. It, it, it's all over the place. It's the Congo. It's Indonesia, as we're now discussing. In a moment, we'll, we'll talk about Iran uh, and, and Egypt, uh, if, t- if time permits. But let's just finish up with Indonesia. So this, this bloody coup uh, the, to overthrow Sukarno and um, the CIA, they're funneling in uh, money and, and propaganda and so forth. Uh, just continue on, Jim, right. and then we'll, we'll move on to Iran. Right. And so the guy they decide to back is this General Suharto. And Suharto is sort of like a double agent. Uh, he's making like he's part of the team that wants to protect Sicarno, but he's really a guy who is working on the other side. And so he pretty much takes over the night of the coup, okay? And th- through instructions through the army, they went ahead and decimated the PKI, which was the Indonesian Communist Party, which I'm pretty sure was the largest communist party in any country outside of Russia and China. All right. And nobody really knows. Like you said, quarter of a million, half a million. Some people put it even higher. Okay. This well, is, the rivers were running red. Over. The rivers were running red. Yes. Yes. And so when it's all over, the same thing happened in Indonesia that happened in Congo. Suharto becomes more or less a military dictator like Joseph Mobutu, and he sacks the country, except one big difference. Indonesia was even richer than Congo mm-hmm. because of, like you talked about, the, these two uh, gold strikes called the Erzberg and the Grossberg in these mountains on West Erion, which 
very few people knew about, but Alan Dulles did, that they were the most phenomenal sources of gold in the entire world at that time. And so what happens, of course, is that a Rockefeller company called Freeport Sulphur comes in, buys the uh, claim from Suharto, and to, to say they took out hundreds of millions actually is a low ball. It's probably in the tens of billions, okay, right. from both places. Later became Freeport Mac Moran, all right? And the wealth was just mind-boggling. Gold, silver, copper. There was even oil in West Iran, all right? There's a good book coming out in the fall about this called Alan Dulles versus John F. Kennedy, Target Indonesia. All right. Well, I know because I wrote the afterword for it. All right. Now, Excellent. Uh, I think the place um, we should I want to mention Iran to next. Yeah. Can we talk about okay. Iran? Because uh, we know that in the 1950s, Nobody the CIA. Nobody talks about the Middle East. Oh, okay. do you want to, well, do you want to go there? Policy. Yeah. Well, why don't we go to his Middle East policy? See, okay. Kennedy, Nasser. JFK was a, was a big supporter of Abdul Nasser. Right. Just what I was going to say. Kennedy looked at Nasser of Egypt as a way of neutralizing the radical Islamist in that area. He didn't like people like the Shah in Iran or King Saud in Saudi Arabia. He thought they were backward. He thought they were dictatorial. He thought they lacked in human rights. And so he put a lot of pressure on the Shah to begin to at least democratizing his state and granting uh, serfs property and human rights, etc. And so what happens is that he begins to back Nasser because Nasser, number one, is a progressive. Egypt is a democracy and he's secular. Okay. Nasser opposed the Muslim Brotherhood. He declared war on the Muslim Brotherhood in inside of Egypt. Okay, and so Kennedy looked at him to moderate. Okay, the Arabs. And there's two other things that are very important. Number one, Kennedy was trying to press Golda Meir and David Ben Gurion in Israel as a right to return for Palestinians. What that meant was that he thought the Palestinians who were thrown out during the, uh, during the war of 47 and 48, and I think what they call it the Nabaka, is it called the Nabaka? N-B-A-K-A? That's I'm not sure the pronunciation, yeah. Yeah, okay, and so he said, look, we should give these people three options. They can stay where they are, they can return to their homes in Israel, or they can be resettled somewhere else. The UN will pay for it, which really meant the United States would pay for it. And he was pushing this all the way into 1963, after the UN had given up on it. Okay? Try and find an American politician who's for that today. All right? But, and then the second thing he was demanding of Israel was Demona inspections. Right. Right. He's their nuclear missiles. The atomic reactor at Demona 
was for a nuclear weapon. I'm sure you know all about that, right? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yes. But, but the other thing, though, was he, Kennedy was here's just just a, qu- a quick point on on U.S. Israel relations. Kennedy was really the first president that said to Israel, we have your back because he sold them uh, anti aircraft guns. And, and uh, he was in many regards, you know, they, they planted that the JFK Memorial Forest in Israel. He was Israel's best friend. Um, so anyway. I, I just wanted to, to 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 throw that in there. No, he he sold them jets, but he, yeah. he checked this out with Nasser to begin with. He let Nasser know what he was doing and why he was doing it. Okay, because he was trying to find a middle. Okay, that he could negotiate, bring some people to the negotiating table. You know, by not alien, completely alienating Israel. But I will say this: Kennedy wrote two threatening letters to David Ben-Gurion in which he literally said, either you're going to let us into Demona or you're going to have trouble getting money out of us. All right. And this first letter, Ben-Gurion went nuts, started accusing, uh, you know, Nasser of being a new Hitler. Okay. Kennedy just ignored it, wrote him another letter. The second one, he was a little bit more moderate in his reply but he was still did not give them a timetable. The next day, and I'm telling you, this is absolutely the truth. David Ben-Gurion stepped down as prime minister of Israel. Okay. And I wrote a long article in this magazine called Garrison about this because I thought, I don't think that many people knew about it. All right. But I think it's extraordinarily interesting because our Middle East policy after Kennedy's assassination just like everything else. It went completely bonkers. It went completely downhill. We're just about Way out of time here, Jim, but, but the, the important thing here for me is 60 years ago almost, he, Kennedy saw the danger of radical Islam and was trying to prevent right. that from happening, but, and now all his, you know, his, his worst nightmare came true, didn't it? Right, exactly correct. All right, Jim, we are out of time, but very quickly, when can we hope to see this new exciting documentary project you're working alongside with Oliver Stone? Well, I suspect it'll be done in March, go on the market next summer, so you'll probably see it next fall. Fantastic. And uh, we can follow uh, all the latest updates at the website kennedysandking.com, and I've linked up to that site on uh, strangeplanet.com. The CA, just click on Jim's name. It'll take you right there, kennedysandking.com. Jim, always a pleasure. Thank okay. you so much, my friend. Thanks, Rich. Jim DiEugenio, what a busy guy. All right, when we come back, the miracle molecule, carbon 60. Stay with us. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate in your cabin in the woods, and how do each and every one of you listening in on our flagship station, AM 740, 96.7 FM, the Zoomer Radio, right here in Toronto, Hiya to those of you tuning in on one of our affiliate stations across North America 
And hey, you, streaming us at zoomerradio.ca. And those of you streaming us live on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet. And of course, those of you who assemble each and every week without fail in the YouTube channel live chat. And uh, let's not forget those who listen to the Conspiracy Show podcast, which is available everywhere fine podcasts are available. However, and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. A quick programming note. Next week on this transmission, Victor Vigiani and Paul LaVioletta will be here for the full two hours to discuss UFO propulsion systems. Uh, And then in two weeks, Tom Horn from Skywatch TV will be here to discuss his new book, The Wormwood Prophecy. All right. It has been hailed as one of the greatest scientific discoveries of the late 20th century. In fact, three scientists were awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for their discovery of the molecule carbon-60. These soccer ball-shaped molecules known as buckyballs, after American architect, inventor, and futurist Buckminster Fuller, have some amazing properties. The C60 molecule is extremely stable. It's able to withstand high temperatures and pressures. The hollow structure is also able to entrap other smaller species, such as helium, while at the same time not reacting with the fullerene molecule. In fact, the interior of most buckyballs is so spacious they can encase any element from the periodic table. In laboratories around the world, scientists began then playing with these buckyballs. Some speculated the buckyballs might make good lubricants, slipping and sliding like tiny ball bearings. NASA thought buckyballs might be used as rocket fuel. Medical researchers found they showed promise as an anti-HIV drug. Mixed in with some potassium or rubidium, buckyballs turned into superconductors, transmitting electricities with no loss to resistance. IBM, DuPont, and Xerox were among the companies to explore possible commercial applications. But aside from their myriad industrial applications, C60 appears to have some amazing healing qualities as well. And here to discuss this miracle molecule is Chris Burris. Chris is an engineer and co-owner of the newest C60 company, C60 Evo. Chris confirmed findings on carbon-60, a Nobel Prize winning technology originally meant for military defense and now sought out by global mega corporations. Chris, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Wonderful, Richard. How are you doing this evening? I'm very well myself. Thank you. So I, I was mentioning these three uh, three scientists. So we didn't know about this molecule carbon sixty until the late nineties. Uh, how did they How did they discover it? Well, so the the discovery started um, really uh, Dr. Croto. So the three uh, scientists were Smalley, Croto, and Curl. Dr. Croto is from the uh, is from the UK, and he came to visit Dr. Richard Smalley here in Houston at Rice University on three separate occasions. And he was looking into space and noticed some spectrum that he was trying to identify, and he theorized that there would be carbon. Uh, Dr. Smalley actually had a, a pretty incredible piece of equipment that had the ability to uh, laser ablate, so basically shine a laser at a material, and then a puff of inert gas would take the, the, the fumes, the, the plume from that, and take it into a mass spec. So you could actually identify the exact size of the molecules uh, that, that you know were created as they were laser ablated. 
Uh, Dr. Smalley at the time was really focused on some really kind of uh, sexy materials like titanium and steel. And so he he actually kind of rebuked uh, uh, Croto for uh, two, th- really three of his trips. Uh, finally, on the third trip, one of Dr. Smalley's grad students uh, pulled Dr. Croto aside and said, look, I'm going to come into the lab. Uh, I'm going to, uh, uh, you know, I was going to spend some time over the weekend. I'm going to, uh, let me go ahead and put some carbon uh, in this, uh, in, in, in this equipment. And, uh, and at the end of that weekend, uh, that grad student had actually identified peaks. Now, it's kind of important to understand as you're shining a laser at carbon, what you're probably creating are sheets of carbon. And what that grad student was able to do was in, change the settings and enhance the peaks. And there were peaks at 60 and 70. Uh, and so if you're making just kind of flat sheets of carbon, why would 60, you know, a flat sheet of 60 be more predominant than, say, a 59 or a 61? So he kind of took that information to the to the three Nobel Prize winning scientists. Uh, they kind of put their heads together and ultimately identified this as being um, the third form of carbon. Looks like a geodesic dome. Uh, and, and they submitted a paper to Nature, you know, one of the most prestigious uh, uh, scientific publications. And, and, you know, that publication came out in 1985. And, and the fact that they're hollow, these soccer ball-shaped molecules, they're hollow inside, they're large, and they can entrap just basically every other element on the periodic table. Why is that significant? Well, one of the reasons, that, you know, kind of more superficially, if you will, is there's a new symbol in chemistry because of this characteristic. So there never was the at symbol in chemistry before, you know, we're familiar with the at symbol as it relates to mm. uh, our email addresses, but it didn't, didn't exist in chemistry. So now you have this at symbol. And so lanthanum at C60 actually means the la- uh, a lanthanum atom physically trapped inside of C60. So C60 again is 60, 60 carbon atoms and its shape is like a soccer ball. So if you imagine the soccer ball, the lines on the soccer ball represent the bonds between the carbon atoms. So you've got the spherical molecule of carbon. So lanthanum at C60, again, means that the lanthanum atom is physically trapped inside of C60. It's not covalently or ionically bonded with it. It's just trapped inside of it. Okay, so these it has these amazing properties. I think I mentioned once before that it can it can be basically fired at a, a cement wall at tens of thousands of kilometers per hour, and it will it will retain its shape. So one can imagine why, for example, the military would be very interested in this. And it has I mentioned Dupont and IBM. It has all of these. Uh, it has superconduct superconduct conductivity. Um, uh, characteristics as well. So IBM was interested. You can see why it has these applications. So at a certain point, I guess they have to figure out, well, if we're going to use it in just about everything, is it going to be toxic to humans? And that's where this r- this amazing uh, animal study comes in. Tell me about that. Well, yeah, just to, to, to roll back, I was actually reading, uh, there's a, a book called The Beautiful Molecule, which is about the buckyball. And, and I was going back and rereading it. And one of the things that, uh, during, right around, so, so they discovered it in 1985. It won the Nobel Prize in 1996. Um, and they actually figured out ways to make kind of macroscopic quantities. So you can imagine if you're shining a laser at a piece of carbon and this puff of gas is, going into a mass spec, you're not going to make a large quantity. Uh, it was really in about uh, 1990 that they discovered a way to make macroscopic quantities so that they could start doing research on it. 
1991, I think the number was nine out of 10 papers were, were related to carbon 60 in the chemistry field, right? So, wow. the, yeah. So this is why they won the Nobel Prize by 1996, because everybody was going crazy for this. And one of the things I've always described is a C60, affectionately known as the buckyball, by the way, the, the whole the C60, the next abundant form of fullerenes is, is carbon 70. And as you mentioned, it was all named after Buckminster fullerene. So they're all called fullerenes. And then that most abundant C60 is the buckyball. So I always say that C60 performs as well or better than the current best material in every application that it's put into. Uh, so, you know, carbon black is, is you know, a, a carbon material that goes into tires and inks. It performs better both in tires and in inks, but it's too expensive. Uh, it performs better in solar cells. It performs better in batteries and, and is cost competitive with lithium. And so that's why this, you know, the, all of these papers were, were, were being written about Bucky, uh, way back in 1991. And yeah, that's right. part and, of the reason. Go ahead. No, uh, I was just going to say, and, and so it's, if it's going to be in everything, we better find out darn quick whether it has any adverse effects on humans because it's going to be everywhere. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, some scientists, um, figured that it, or hearkened it to a 3D version of benzene. So, so benzene, the benzene ring is ubiquitous in our modern society. Without it, we really don't have modern society. Um, it's in plastics, it's in medicines, it's in detergents. Uh, so it's the foundation of most of those molecules that create those substances I just mentioned. And so a 3D version of benzene, um, you know, obviously is going to be ubiquitous. It's important to note that benzene is actually toxic and carcinogenic. And so they kind of assumed that this buckyball was going to be toxic and carcinogenic. So they did this study uh, in 2012. It was a toxicity study. Uh, it was done out of the University of Paris. And that what they did is they gave rats a water, they gave them olive oil, and they gave them olive oil with C60. Now, for me, it's important to start making a distinction. When you start putting C60 into, into live animals and, and potentially humans, um, I like to call it ESS60. So C60 is for industrial applications. If you process it improperly, it's actually been shown to be harmful to animals. ESS60 is what we're going to talk about and has all the research. It's been C60 that's been processed for safer human consumption. So they gave these rats this uh, ESS60 in olive oil. And again, it was a toxicity study. They assumed these rats were going to die similar to exposure to benzene. And it turns out that they live 90% longer than the control group, which is the single longest longevity experiment on mammals ever. Wow. So what is 90%? What does that look like in terms of a rat's life? So um, a typical, in this case, they use Worcester rats. And so a typical Worcester rat lives about 32 months and those given water averaged about 32 months. Uh, the ones given ESS 60 in olive oil lived 62 months. And, and, and actually they, they, they ended up with the final two rats. One of them uh, died and then they actually euthanized the last rat because they were, imagine this poor researcher, he's doing this toxicity study. If a typical Worcester rat dies at 32 months, you know, the projected time frame of his toxicity study is 32 months or shorter. <laughs> and he's now an additional 30 months into this particular quote unquote toxicity study. Uh, so typical Worcester rat dies at 32. The rats given ESS 60 and olive oil live to, uh, on average 62. And what's amazing is that none of those 
rats that lived 62 months that were given ESS-60 and olive oil uh, had any tumors. Uh, Worcester yeah, rats are no rats get, with tumors. Yeah, rats get tumors. They do. Rats get tumors. So basically, and the longer uh, they it, live, the more tumors yeah. they get. So these rats, you know, not only didn't have tumors, they didn't have tumors after living almost double the lifespan of a typical Worcester rat. Right. And this is a peer-reviewed study. Yep. And 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 it's one of the longest uh, animal uh, toxicity studies going, right? Well, so I'm kind of on a quest, right? So to my knowledge, it is the longest longevity. Okay, it was a toxicity study. I think we can now call it a longevity study. It's the longest longevity experiment on mammals that I've been able to find. I've been kind of hunting for more than two years now, and, and I haven't been able to find any study that's, that's longer. So if anybody in your audience is aware of a study, please get that over to me because um, I, I, you know, I want to make sure that I'm being scientifically accurate. But you know, my research and the science, the science papers uh, on ResearchGate and, and all of those places that would identify that paper, uh, I have been unable to find a, a longevity experiment that's longer. Now, so at this point, are you manufacturing uh, C60 for industrial use? We, yeah, so we still sell um, really pure C60 into research into the research market. So we've been selling um, not just C60, C70, carbon nanomaterials in general uh, to research institutions around the world since 1991. You mentioned a few of them, IBM. We've got the Naval Aeronautical Weapons Station. We've sold into NASA. I mean, um, really, if there's a research institution that you're aware of, we've sold uh, carbon fullerenes to those research institutions. Uh, yeah, and yes, we still sell that. They're still doing research. Um, probably the next, so we'll talk about, you know, th- this study now has kind of created an offshoot of a really a kind of a supplement business. Um, right. And it, it which you supplement. never intended to get into, which you never intended to get into, right? Yeah. So <laughs> I have this theory. I, I think that most people become supplement people for one or one or two uh, one of two reasons. The first reason is that somebody just decides they want to be wealthy and they are good at marketing, so they're going to market supplements and they're going to get really rich. I have no problem with anybody being rich. I just didn't end up a supplement guy, if you will, because that was my path. The other is uh, people often are dealing with their own health issues and they end up solving their own health issues through research and uh, you know, digging deep into the to the literature and understanding and getting on their own supplement and health regime. Uh, maybe it's for their parents. And then they decide that they're going to share this information and they're going to sh- save the world. I have no problem with saving the world, but that's not what's that's not how I ended up on this path. Really, I've been manufacturing this, you know, C60 and now we call it ESS60 when you're going to consume it. Uh, I've been manufacturing ESS60 since 1991. They do this, uh, you know, toxicity study that turns out to be a longevity study. Uh, and then we start getting phone calls, uh, people asking us how much in a dose. In fact, our, our initial response when people were asking us that was, you know, we imagine us, we still had our carbon nanomaterial hats on. And we're like, no, 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 this, no, you put this in tires and batteries and solar cells. You don't put this in your body. So in mid-2013, we actually added not for human consumption to our packaging and we did that not because it, it wasn't safe when properly processed, and the literature was pretty clear on that, but we did it because our, our kind of mindset, our right science carbon nanomaterial mindset was like, this is not something to consume. 
Uh, and so we added not for human consumption uh, in 2013 and really pulled that labeling off in, in 2018. Once, is that because you got wind of this longevity study? Well, no. So we, so we were aware of the study really early. And, you know, again, that's the st- that study is what caused people to start calling us. We were actually selling um, ESS-60 in olive oil. So it takes a really long time to mix it. You want to make sure it doesn't oxidize. So, again, it's kind of a scientific process. And instead of people just buying the raw C60 uh, and mixing it in oil, we said, look, we've got this ESS-60. <clears throat> it's in oil. And you can recreate the, the, you know, it was under the auspices of them recreating this rat study. Uh, and, and that's what we were doing it from 2013 until 2017. 2017, uh, a, a social media guy with a huge following started talking about him taking ESS 60 and all of the benefits that he was giving it, right? So it kind of makes sense if you're one of these biohackers and you see this paper, the longest longevity experiment on mammals ever. That's something that a biohacker is really attracted to, so they start taking it. This guy with a social media following, 2007, October 2017, uh, comes out with a video and, and talks about all the benefits he's getting. Uh, and when he does it, really, the industry sells out. Everybody at the time who was selling uh, ESS-60 and olive oil to the industry sold out, except for us, because we're the largest manufacturer and distributor of ESS-60 on the planet. So we really didn't have any problems uh, kind of delivering what was sold to us. I came into 2018, and I asked myself two questions, right? Because are we going to sell this? It's obviously a business opportunity. It's not an opportunity we saw, sought out. And I said, first question uh, is a moral question. I take the product. My wife takes the product. Really, everybody on my team takes the product. I'm comfortable selling this material to you or anybody who's interested in trying it. Uh, and the other is the legal issue, which is the FDA and the FTC. And we're, we're on the right side of both of those organizations. And what does that mean you're on the right side of the FDA? What does that mean? So d- when you dig into the FDA code, there's certain things that you have to conform to. Um, and, and we're conforming to them. I mean, it's, it's, it really is that simple. Okay. And we're just about out of time on this. Uh, we're going into a break here, but just mm-hmm. let me start this uh, conversation. We'll pick up on the other side. And that is, I mean, how do you, how do you manufacture ESS 60? You take this carbon 60 and how do you make it so that it's consumable and safe? Yeah. Well, we can even get farther back and go like, how do you make C60? I think there's, you know, three ways to do it. And it's pretty fascinating how it's done. Okay. Well, we've just got about a minute here. So let's start and then we'll uh, pick it up on the other side. Excellent. Go ahead. So the the main process and the process that was first kind of initiated in in about 1990 um, is the carbon arc method. So basically you would take two graphite rods and you vaporize them. So you're running a really high current between those two graphite rods. You need to do it in, in an inner environment. So that's an environment devoid of oxygen. And, uh, and, and so there's really high temperatures actually at the tips of those rods where they're vaporizing because graphite's one of the hardest materials actually to evaporate. Uh, it's actually localized temperatures of the sun. In fact, on our system, we actually have a screen like a welder's goggle uh, that protect, protects the operator. If you don't have that on, you will get a sunburn because it's actually generating uh, the visible light that's that's you know that you would find from the sun. And then it sounds that, like a reactor. It sounds like a reactor, it, Chris. 
it is a reactor. It is. It's a it's a high temperature, low uh, you know low vacuum. It's not ultra low, but it's a low vacuum. Actually, the lower you can get the vacuum, uh, the less oxygen you have in there, and so it's be- you make better material that way. All right, the music is percolating up. That means we'll step away just for a moment. We'll come back, Chris Burrows, from C60 Evo, and we'll talk about this remarkable miracle molecule. The conspiracy show continues right after this. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Chris Burris is with us, co-owner of C60 Evo, and we're talking about the, I guess, the consumable form of carbon-60, which is called ESS-60. And you were describing the the process by which you, uh, you, you created or make it, and it sounds like a reactor. You said, well, it is a reactor. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a, it's a reactor. And in that reactor, you're actually um, vaporizing graphite. And, and, and again, that material is one of the hardest materials on the planet to vaporize. So you've got ultra high temperatures. There's a lot of uh, um, it, it temperature controls. So you've got water cooling that's a, that you've got to manage. And then you've got to collect the soot that comes off of this. So uh, that soot is called fullerenic soot. Uh, and that soot actually has about seven to ten percent fullerenes. If, well, if you're doing things right, so uh, about seven per, to ten percent of the material that comes off of that vaporized graphite rod is is actually fullerenes. And so the next step is you've got to purify. And when I say fullerenes, it's really like C60, C70, C76, C84, all of these fullerenes. So the next step is you've got to separate these fullerenes from that actually, uh, uh, we call it amorphous carbon. And the, the way you do that is similar to how you might separate sugar and sand, right? If you take sugar and sand, you mix it with water, the sugar will go into solution and then you filter it. And what, hap- what stays on top of the filter is the sand. What goes through is actually the sugar in the sugar water. So if you take this fullerenic soot and you dissolve it in a, in a solvent like toluene or hexane, um, then you actually filter it. So the fullerenes go into solution and go through the filter and all this amorphous carbon junk, the, the, the 90 to 93% of the material stays on top. And what comes through is usually a reddish solution and that's your fullerenic soot or, I mean, your fullerene solution. When you boil off the solvents, you actually end up with uh, about 80% C60 and really mostly, most of the rest is C70. So about 80, 20 of C70. And then your next step is actually to separate those two materials. What they used in that original study uh, back in um, 2012 uh, was was pure a pure form of C60. So the next step is still involves these chemical processes. Um, you're really using chromatography. You separate it and your C60 goes through these chromatographic columns faster. You collect that fraction. I'm getting very te- technical here. We'll be done shortly. Um, and then you end up with a beautiful purple solution of pure C60 and varying degrees of purity, depending on how you're running your equipment. You boil right. off that solvent and now you've got your, 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 what I would say C60. That's the C60 material that we sell kind of for industrial applications. And then you've got a couple more steps in order to turn that into ESS. Sounds like a long and rather expensive process. <laughs> it is It is a very long and very expensive process. In fact, when we started uh, uh, back in 1991, the material was selling for $6,000 per gram. My word. 
Yeah, it was. Okay. That's part of the reason that we that we started business. My my business partner Robert Wong was working at the Texas Center for Superconductivity at the University of Houston campus, and he was separating fullerenes because because uh, uh, you know you mentioned it was superconducting. And and one day a professor came in and said, "Hey, you are young kids. This material is selling for six thousand dollars a gram. You guys really should you know just go start a company and and make this." And my business partner Robert was from an entrepreneurial background and. And he jumped on it, and I was studying mechanical engineering, so all the heat transfer and all the components and making all the drawings so that we could actually get the original piece of equipment manufactured, uh, I was I was responsible for that piece, and and we were off and running as as the really the first company that still exists to deliver commercial quantities of carbon nanomaterials. So the 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 takeaway here is this is not for amateurs. This isn't something you can cook up in your bathtub. I mean, this is. This is very technical, very scientific, very expensive. Uh, so yeah. let's talk about this ESS-60 then that, that was fed yeah. to the rats, doubled their life. So how do, how do people consume it? How do you take it? So typically, just like the, the, the rats, they were given, uh, you can dissolve a small amount. It's actually not that much um, of ESS-60 in olive oil. So you take about 0.8, um, we'll say, grams per liter, so not even a full gram per liter of olive oil, and you have to mix it. We end up mixing it in our larger vats for three weeks uh, until we get, the, the, get all of that 0.8 grams to dissolve into each liter. And then you've got this uh, this olive oil that's kind of turned a darker color, so it's kind of has an amber color. Um, you can also dissolve it in different oils, and so we have available MCT oil, avocado oil, if those are your choices. We always recommend, um, well, for two reasons. We always recommend olive oil because we're such a science-based institution, and the original research and really the only research that's out there is this ESS-60 in olive oil. Um, and, and then there's other grades that people have just been asking for, like NMCT. One of the important things to note if you put, uh, C60 or ESS60, because you're going to consume it into MCT oil, you, you cannot, you can't even get half of the ESS60 in MCT oil that you can get in olive oil. So you end up having to take a lot more of the MCT and, 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 you know, that's a really important thing to take, uh, to take note of if you're going to try MCT oil. Okay, so you you take it uh, like by the spoonful. I mean, how much did they feed the rats? Uh, yeah, uh, in a day, and how much do we take? So, so the rats were given. I don't remember the number right off the top of my head, but basically, if you did a per kilogram, um, you know, a- equation and calculate how much the average human should take, the average human on a per kilogram basis should be taking a full cup of olive oil, right, uh, with the ESS sixty in it. And, and you can imagine that's not going to work and it's also not the right thing to do. So, uh, it's quite common for, for us as we're taking a rat study and trying to go into a human trial study for us to do what's called an allometric calculation. And what that allometric calculation does is it takes in, into consideration the difference in metabolism rates of, in this case, the rat and the human. And so we do an allometric calculation and we end up with a dosage that's about uh, five milligram, milliliters, which is, uh, one teaspoon. So about one tea, most of our customers are taking one teaspoon per day, uh, in the morning. And, and what does the anecdotal evidence suggest? And of course we have to be, you know, we can't make any, uh, uh claims that it's healing or, or, uh, you know, curing anything, but yep. anecdotally, what are people saying 
when they use it, what, what's happening? Yeah. So anytime I'm going to start talking about, you know, what, what are, what people are reporting, um, I've got, I've got to mention the FDA hasn't evaluated the product. It's not intended to treat, diagnose, cure, or prevent any disease. It's really important to say because it's, it's good to remind people that this is very early, you know, in the very early stages. Uh, one of our most consistent testimonials is better sleep. And I recently read a book called Why We Sleep. It's a, it's a pretty amazing book. It's also one of the scariest books I've read. And the reason it's so scary is that it outlines like in excruciating detail what happens to our bodies when we don't sleep. And, and so that book has taken me, I feel like as a society, we do a lot of hand wave and say, oh, yeah, you really should get a lot of sleep. And then there's this kind of undertone of, unless you have other things to do, right? So, <laughs> right, right. And you read this book and you're like, you start to think, you know, I really need to get my sleep because it's bad for my heart. It's bad for, it makes, it can actually make you appear like you have diabetes. Uh, it's bad for your memory. It's bad for your cognition. It's just bad for so many pieces of you. And we get a, a really broad spectrum of testimonials in, in a lot of different areas. And I kind of, my current theory is, if it's helping you sleep better, and that's, again, the most consistent testimonial, then all of these other things that are reporting, uh, people are reporting are, are actually could just be because they're getting better sleep. Because if you sleep better, your your mental, emotional, and physical well-being is improved. Uh, right. It's thing, so restorative. Yeah. This, when we sleep, I mean, our body is and our brains are, are mending. It's restorative. Yeah. And it, it, I mean, it's it's so important, right? And, and uh, I, I, this kind of is an interesting kind of tidbit. Uh, the Guinness World Record has actually uh, removed days without sleep because it can kill you, right? So, that, mm-hmm. so you can no longer pursue the longest, you know, amount of time without going to sleep because just lack of sleep can kill you. That's how well, important it is. And Sure, there's and, a reason they use sleep deprivation as a form of torture. Yes, Exactly. Um, and, okay. and the book actually talks a little bit about that. So, you know, yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating piece of it and, and talks about what the standards actually should be. So when people take ESS-60, they're sleeping better. Uh, yeah. What else are they saying? So um, I can talk w- w- just one other point on the sleep, because I think this is really important. Um, that book, Why We Sleep, talks about the $2 billion sleep aid industry. I'm going to do kind of air quotes around sleep aid because what most of the sleep, quote unquote, sleep aids do is they just knock you out. So mm. they, they relieve in you the chemical pressure, the chemical desire to get sleep. So you wake up and you're not desirous of that sleep but they don't let you get your in-REM or your REM sleep, right? And again, these are typically things you take right before you go to sleep. Our product, you actually take in the morning, uh, people report uh, more energy and more focus during the day, and then that night, it helps you sleep. And so it's really, we don't know how it's, uh, what it's doing to enhance sleep, right? If, it, if in fact it's enhancing sleep, I'm actually working on, there's a company called Aura Ring. They sell what's supposed to be the best kind of, we'll call it over-the-counter uh, sleep monitoring device. It's a ring. And I'm working with them to start a study so we can actually just look at the data of people who have these Aura Rings, you know, 10 days prior to being on ESS-60 uh, and then 10 days after. And again, we, we sell it as C60 Evo. All right. We'll, um, we'll take another time out here, Chris. We'll come back and we'll talk about some of the other the anecdotal evidence, what other 
uh, health benefits or people reporting after taking ESS-60. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show and the Miracle Molecule right here. My name is Richard Serrett. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Chris Burris is here. And uh, we are talking about ESS-60, which is the consumable form of carbon-60, this uh, remarkable uh, molecule that uh, garnered a Nobel Prize for three scientists back in the late 90s. And uh, Chris's company is um, the largest uh, producer in the world. So we were talking about, uh, so people are now, it's safe to take. We had this toxicity uh, study, which turned into a longevity study with rats. They live twice as long, these Worcester rats. They normally would live 32 months. They were given uh, ESS-60 in olive oil. They lived 62 months uh, and died without, uh, there were no tumors present, which is very strange. Uh, so now you, you take a, a teaspoon a day. People say they sleep better. What else do they say? Yeah, so I can I can speak for me personally. Um, really started taking it earnestly at the beginning of twenty. Well, really towards the end of twenty seventeen, beginning of twenty eighteen. Uh, I had a knee pain. I played soccer for twenty five years, uh, semi professional, uh, and that knee pain has been gone and continues. Like hasn't hasn't come back. Um, one of the ones that I, I and that that's very subjective. Um, I, I I like a lot more when I'm able to talk about really uh, more objective things. So. I used to get migraines. I would get four or five migraines a year. In fact, I have a spreadsheet that I was trying to keep track of my migraines and understand what was causing those migraines. Uh, and that was all the way back to 2014. Four or five migraines a year, really started taking the product in earnest in the beginning of 2018. I didn't get a single migraine for all of 2018. And then in 2019, in March, I had one. I would argue that that one migraine was actually of a lower, significantly lower intensity. Um, But again, I think that's more kind of subjective. It's very objective to say, I didn't have any migraines in 2018, and I've only had one in 2019, and we're almost done uh, with the 2019 year. So really, I've had one where I should have had eight, uh, eight to 10, 10 migraines. And so that's, that's, you know, very kind of uh, objective for me. Also, my wife, actually was on a medication for her migraines. Uh, she would get, well, the medication allowed her, her to have only nine per month. They wouldn't, you know, it's a strong medication, so she couldn't take more than nine. Uh, and so now she, so that's demonstrable. Like we, we were actually purchasing that material on a, on a, that medicine on a monthly basis. And now she's down to like one or two migraines per month. And so, um, we know that it can cross the blood brain barrier. And so that's an important, uh, potential kind of, uh, it has influence on why it might interact in certain ways to help with migraines. And again, the FDA hasn't evaluated it for migraines, but we get that report, um, you know, certainly with me. And then we've had a number of people call in and say the, the same thing. Right. Right. Now, uh, this is a short segment. We'll take a time out shortly and then we'll, uh, we'll continue on. But, uh, getting back to that animal study for a moment, what do we know about, uh, just because rats will double their life, can, what can we extrapolate for humans, if anything, well, from that? That's a that's a great question. And so I kind of mentioned one quest is, is if anybody in your audience is aware of a longer a longevity experiment on mammals, um, you know, peer reviewed, published, of course, uh, then please share that. My other kind of quest is is 
What exactly your question? Um, you're specific to this case, but mine's more more kind of general, which is what percentage of things that happen in rats actually do happen to humans, or or you know maybe the study is about what doesn't happen in rats. And then, therefore, doesn't happen in a human, and 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 that's that's my other quest. I, I I was actually on the phone with a professor out of DePaul University. He does rat studies. He kind of takes them into human trial studies, and I and I asked him the, that same question, and he gave me this uh, this story. It's kind of a longer story, but basically, there's one case that people will hold up, and they'll say, "Hey, this is the perfect example of why you can't take what happens into a rat and apply it to humans." And then he pointed out but they looked at the wrong information in the rats. Had they looked at the right information, they would have never taken that study uh, to a human trial. And so he's basically saying most often things that happens into rats happen in humans. I don't know if you know this, but we're more genetically similar to rats than rats are to mice. Seriously, I had no idea. Yeah, I'm not sure if I like that. It's totally <laughs> wrong on this one, right? <laughs> wow. Okay, so... What about are we going to see some some human trials, uh, human studies then? So I'm I'm very hopeful that we can do this. The next step for like, from a scientific perspective is you've got this initial amazing result, absolutely amazing result. And then the next step is to recreate that result. Nobody's actually stepped up to recreate that. And so we're actually in the early stages of uh, some of the preliminary studies that you need to do to, to go into this kind of rat study. And so we're actually going to fund a, a full-on rat study. Obviously, the results won't be ready for 62 months. And we're going to do it a little bit differently uh, because of the, the way those rats were dosed in the original study. Uh, we're going to make a couple of changes to that. Um, and I don't know if the break soon, and we can dive into that now or maybe after the break, because it's interesting how they decided to dose those rats in the initial study. Uh, yeah, we are going to break here in just a minute, but just I just wanted to um, discuss a little bit about the, uh, the possibility of doing, though, I mean, could you not start just based on the, the, the people that are taking it? I know it's not exactly scientific uh, conditions, but could you not do a voluntary hu human study with the people that are using it now? Yeah, and, and I think an example is what I'm planning to do with uh, with Aura and uh, with the Aura Ring, right? So, hey, here's people who actually have sleep data prior to taking ESS60 or taking C60 Evo, and then here's people who have uh, uh, you know data after they started taking C60 Evo, and what are what is happening to their actual to, to the sleep they're having? And that's those sleep devices. They're they're not the best. Um, you know, the best thing is to actually get them into a sleep lab. And so I have already reached out to the author of Why We Sleep, and I'm, and I'm trying to get a hold of him. He's, he, I think he's on a busy, on a press tour for, for the release of this book, um, phenomenal book again. Uh, it, but I'm trying to reach him because somebody who actually has a sleep lab, it'd be very easy to, like, take, you know, two nights of, you know, connect them up to all of the, the electronic components that really monitor the sleep, that understand the REM sleep, the in-REM sleep, and and how much of the sleep was each of those components, and then give them the C60 Evo formulation uh, and see what happens to them. That, so that's something that I'm, I'm actively trying to put together already. All right, Chris, sit tight. We'll come back and uh, we'll uh, talk about that uh, second rat study as well that you're looking to do. And uh, we'll tell people how they can find out more about ESS60 C60 Evo. The co-owner, Chris Burroughs here, will continue to talk about this miracle molecule on the other side. Don't go away. 
You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Chris Burroughs is here, the co-owner of C60 Evo, and we're talking about a consumable uh, form of this uh, molecule, Carbon 60. It's called ESS60. And uh, incidentally, if you want to find out more, you can. Uh, I've linked up to the C60 Evo site if you go to strangeplanet.ca and just click on Chris's name. Uh, that'll take you right there. And uh, you've also... Uh, you're going to bonus my listeners, I understand, Chris. They get a um, a discount if they order. Yeah, we've got a coupon code if they're interested in using it, if they want to try the product. Again, c60evo.com, and the coupon code is RS1SPEC, uh, as in special, so RS1SPEC. All right, RS1SPEC, and that's uh, f- you get 5% off. Okay, so it, yes. this comes in various uh, size bottles. Is that the idea? Yeah, so um, you can get a four, yeah, we've got four, eight, uh, 16, and 32, so you can get those. We've got that in uh, olive oil, which is what we would recommend, but we also have it available in MCT and avocado. I think I said olive oil is the one that we recommend. Uh, MCT and avocado are also available. We also have it for uh, pets, so we've got a salmon flavored for cats, and then we've got uh, a, a kind of bacon flavored for dogs. Uh, you know, they're interesting testimonial. One of our biggest distributors in Houston, uh, she actually first purchased the product because she was going to give it to her dog. She had heard good things about giving it to her dog and her dog became so youthful in like an activity and appearance. Um, it, which by the way is in- interesting because there's no placebo effect when you're giving it to the dog. So the dog's not convincing itself that it's, you know, taken something that's good for itself and now is acting more useful. Right. Uh, right. So, so this, this distributor actually noticed that and then she started taking the product and, and she's a kind of a good testimonial because she would have told you that she didn't really notice anything. But when she got very introspective about what was happening in her life, she was waking up a little bit earlier. She was actually able to work later in the day, um, didn't get as tired during the day. Those are all kind of subtle things. If it, if it just happens to you one day or two days, you might just write it off as a good day. Uh, and, and a lot of people are kind of tracing back these experiences to, to when they started taking C60 Evo. Okay, so do you, if you take it for like six months and then you stop, is it still going to, like with the rats, it, did they have some rats that they only fed it to them for a few months and then they stopped and they still lived a long time or how did that work? So, so it is very interesting that those rats in that study uh, were given ESS-60 uh, in olive oil starting month 10. So they were about, you know, some people might be saying, oh, if they gave it to them, you know, really young, maybe it's too late. Uh, to try and live a little bit longer. Um, it, they gave it to the rats at, at month 10, which is about one third of their life. And then they ended at month 17. <laughs> so they only got it for seven months, less than one third of their life. And even though only from month 10 to month 17, uh, they lived uh, 62 months, right? Instead of the, the typical 32 months. So it's a pretty amazing impact. And we, we don't really understand what that impact is yet. We just know, you know, in this case, it's the most significant longevity experiment on mammals ever. And again, we don't know how or why it works. Well, we know a couple of things we do know. It is an amazing antioxidant, 172 times more powerful than vitamin C. Uh, and it is amazing anti-inflammatory. And current 
current uh, kind of medical thought processes about aging say that aging is caused by oxidation and inflammation, right? Or, you know, and anti-inflammatory diets are really big right now. Um, all of these, this is the, that fits right into the logic of if you want to live longer, find a product that's a good antioxidant and a, a product that's also a good anti-inflammatory. And, and ESS60 and olive oil or the C60 Evo fit those two really important criteria. Uh, before the break, you wanted to to uh, touch on this rat study that you're going to try to replicate the original animal study with a few changes. Yeah, so the change is going to be, so I mentioned they were given the product uh, at, at month 10, and then they stopped getting it at month 17. Uh, we're not going to stop. We want to see if they take it for the duration of their life, right, their 62 months. You know, maybe we're actually going to get a further extension of life beyond those initial uh, 62 months. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we're, we're real excited about that. Of course, that's going to delay the, the, the release of the results. Um, but I think it's the right thing. So you're, you are in a, in a sense recreating what's happening in that original rat study. Um, but then you're kind of taking it to the next level. And, and that's what we'll be doing when we, when we, uh, kind of invest in that rat study. Uh, what else are people saying about it? So uh, anti-inflammatory, uh, a soccer injury you had it seems to have uh, healed, yeah. uh, better sleep, uh, migraines lessened in their severity or frequency. Uh, what else? Yeah. So uh, wh one of my favorite testimonials is is kind of good because it's subtlety. Uh, there was a guy in our office. We actually have a warehouse in an office space. We're not really, you know, we're not a retail location, but if people are in the Houston area, they can come by and, um, you know, forego the shipping costs. And, and there was one guy up front and, and I, and I recognized him because I was actually the person here. It was on a Sunday. I was the person who took his order, um, you know, his very first order. And he, he was actually in for the third time that we were running a special at that time. And so he was actually getting three bottles. And so I was convinced, oh, this guy would be really good for a testimonial. So I asked him, well, what have you been experiencing? And he, he looked at me and he said, well, I haven't really experienced anything. And my first thought is, well, if you want to take the best research method on the market for living longer and you don't necessarily experience anything, then this is it, right? The C60 Evo formulation is the right thing to be trying. Uh, but there's still, there was this kind of moment of awkward silence. And then he said, well, does it, does it help with arthritis? And I told him, well, the FDA has, and he was gesturing at his knuckles. Uh, and, and I said, the FDA doesn't, you know, hasn't evaluated our product as it relates to arthritis, but we are getting testimonials about that. And he goes, oh, well, then it's helped my arthritis and my knuckles. And then I used to have this click, click, click in my knee and, and that's gone. And then he added, and I, and I also started jogging. I haven't jogged in like five years and now I'm about to go on, I don't know, his eighth jog or so. So he's like he's back to jogging in earnest. And, and, I, and I'm thinking, well, it's too bad you're not experiencing anything. And he added one last thing. He goes, and I noticed I feel less stress at work. And he said, I want to be very clear. It's the same job. It's the same people. It's the same stress. But I feel less stress at work. And, and again, um, we don't know what's causing that. I've got another really strong uh, actually, I, I was on the phone with her again on Thursday, um, where she actually has a, a child who suffers from some mental health issues and was ending up in the hospital four or five times a year. Um, and she got her son on the product uh, at the beginning of this year, and he hasn't gone this entire year. Um, so it's 
we don't know exactly, again, back to anti-inflammatory, back to um, antioxidant, and then beyond that, there's a whole lot of um, mechanisms that we're going to need to study and understand better to because I know there's a desire. I have the desire probably more than any one of your audience. I'm, I'm a skeptical, if not more, I'm a scientist. Um, and I have this desire to understand what is actually happening, right? Like, so what is it, you know, is it involved in the mitochondria aspect and, and the ATP production? What exactly is it doing? And why are we getting all these kind of fantastic um, uh, reports from our clients? All right. So again, people can go to strangeplanet.ca and just click on Chris Burris's name. He's on the front page there. Uh, it's uh, C60, the letter C, the number 60, evo, evo.com. And uh, as a special bonus to uh, our listeners tonight, if you use the code RS1SPEC, RS as in my initials, Richard Serrett, the number one, SPEC as in special, rs one S-P-E-C, and you'll get a special 5% listener discount. And again, at c60evo.com. Just click on Chris Burris's name on the website. I, w- I would add, when they go there, uh, a single bottle, um, you can purchase it. That's fine. Uh, but we have a significant discount on subscription, and you can cancel a subscription at any time. All right, Chris. Uh, always a delight. Thank you so much for this. And um, I look forward to uh, hearing more about this new rat study. Yeah, I, we're, we're looking forward to making it happen. I'd like to talk to you before the end of that study, though. Is, is, will that be okay? <laughs> we absolutely, we will, for sure. <laughs> Excellent. All right, Chris, thanks so much, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. All right, my thanks to Ryan and uh, Owen, and back next week with a brand new program on UFO propulsion. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper. Proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.